Yo, we're asking about excellent wife, right? Uh, Jen's reading that. Mandy's read it. You're reading it again, too? Yeah, that's why Jen's reading That very well may be our first women's meeting with the intent that the words of prophecy that we've been getting are that you guys are going to be the evangelistic force of the church. Not absolving Matt and I of our godly responsibilities, but this is part of that message. You know, something that Jennifer and I got early on that, you know, to the person who prophesied it must have just seemed like, I'm sure they went home, scratched their head, wondered if they heard from God, was that our family would be a witness and that it would be an example for other families. Well, at the time we had no family. It was just she and I, you know. And as time has gone on, I found out just how few balanced couples, couples that really love the Lord, love their kids, and all that works right. There are. Our church, one thing that will separate us from the world to start with is our relationship to work right. And you know what? More than anything else, when you're meeting with some woman in the PTA and you sincerely love your husbands, you sincerely love Jesus, that would be a witness in itself. I mean, you know, some of the conversations Jen's had already is just amazing to me. But this book is just some godly insight from somebody who has been there longer than us and encountered more than us. And from what I can tell, it seems to be a pretty good book. But it may be something that y'all all walk through. Maybe you read on your own and then y'all all walk through in a Bible study with the intent that wherever you go, you can teach some of those principles. Make sense? Uh, anyway, we're exploring that. But not because we don't think anybody's good wives. Okay, that's not. In fact, Mandy gave it to my wife first. But, and Dina gave it to her. Yeah, I know. People have given me. Yeah, that's right. But I know when people have given me books before, it's kind of like when somebody gives you a breath mint. You, what are you saying? You know? Uh, that, that's not the purpose. The purpose is this is probably one of the areas of greatest need in, in all of the, the world. Yeah. yeah. You, know when I, you know when I hear it verbalized the most, and this is way off subject, you start talking about weddings, people say, oh, my vows better not say, and they want to take out everything that is biblical in the vows. That lets you know people have no idea how this works. And uh, the men are no better. It's just that uh, we seem to have more mothers and wives here than we do men. So we're going to start there. Uh, tonight we're in Matthew 23, though. Kind of like how the church should focus on bringing the kids in, the kids' function to get the parents in, the wives in. Well, the, the, my time in Lafayette taught me something, too. Women are basically more spiritual than men. Uh, I didn't, didn't really realize that before they are. The problem is women are not designed to be the spiritual head. But from just a natural standpoint, women are more inclined towards spiritual things than men are. And some of it has to do with our culture, you know. And in Lafayette, it's because there's a woman that is the head of their church, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a whole synagogue of Satan. But the idea being there's a natural inclination there. And Paul said it best. He said, women, you can win over your husbands without words, you know, just by actions. D.L. Moody was one of the uh, famous quotes. He said, five Christian women, five righteous women, and I'll change the whole world. 
That's what he said. Uh, because it's, it's uh, something that's powerful. It's used everywhere in advertising. Well, you guys are advertisement for Jesus, you know. And I, what is weird is that it makes a statement when you're in a group of other ladies and they're all trashing their husbands because inwardly they hate male authority. And you love your husband. You know, that, that is a huge statement. And it's not a put on. Yeah, I love him because I have to. I love him because Jesus says, you really do love your husbands because your relationships mirror Jesus in the church. And same thing with guys. You know, when we're standing around, all anybody's talking about is their old ball and chain, their old lady, all of those things. You know, they're discussing everything from their sex lives not being good to everything that men do. And you're standing there full of Jesus and full of contentment because you're as happy with your wife as, as Jesus is with the church. You stand out of the crowd, you know. Um, so we're going to focus a little bit on families, and we'll go from there. But tonight we're in Matthew 23. Does that sound like something y'all are interested in? Does it? Um, <laughs> yeah, we need to look it up. My only hesitancy with workbooks are some of my experiences in the past. Uh, I didn't think they were very good, yeah. you know. It... it Sometimes people reduce spiritual things to Sunday school level where, you know, you write Jesus in every other blank. And when you don't write Jesus, you write John 3.16. And people think they've completed something because they've completed a workbook when really what we're trying to do is grasp concepts and put them into practice. Yeah. Yeah. That, that could be cool. And you know what? Though I found out with people, there's different temperaments. Some people can journal, and it's great. Others can't. It's laborious, and they just won't. But we need to figure out what works. And the goal of this is not because we're deficient here and we're trying to teach everybody. It's we want to be able to better express what we inwardly know to other people, and we want our lives to display it. Does that make sense? Uh, all right, in Matthew 23, something that I had not planned, but it looks like it's going to work out this way, is we have had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, prior to this, somewhere around Matthew 21. And, uh, yeah, 20, Matthew 21. Jesus is in his four days of examination. Just like you took a Passover lamb into your house on the 10th of Nisan. You kept him in your house from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan where you slaughtered him at twilight. The four days there were to examine this lamb up close. They were to make sure it was without spot, without blemish. And more than that, it was to get sentimentally attached to it so it was hard for you to kill. And you realized that its blood bought you forgiveness. That, that was the message. Jesus is presenting himself every day in the courtyard of the temple. He's teaching out publicly in the very place where they're going to kill these lambs. And he's allowing them to examine him for four days, just like they all have lambs in their homes that they're examining. Uh, by the way, tonight is Wednesday, March 17th. I forgot to say that for the CD. It's St. Patty's Day. Nobody pinched me today, thank God. I wasn't in those kind of doctor's offices today. Uh, having said that, Jesus keeps engaging with the Pharisees in these conversations. And you're going to notice the theme over and over and over. They say things trying to trap him. The reason being, they're trying to prove him guilty of sin. They're trying to show that he's not perfect. 
in the same way that you would discard a Passover lamb. Now, they don't realize that's what's going on, but that is what's going on to the point where I think it's the Gospel of John. Jesus stands up and he says, if any one of you can prove me guilty of sin, do so. And they can't. But some of this conversation that is negative, not negative, but that seems adversarial, that's why. They're... The, the two spiritual powers are peaking, the one that wants to bring life to the world and the one that wants to keep the world shrouded in death. And uh, they're coming to a climactic point here that is going to happen at the cross. But in Matthew 23, we're going to pick this up. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Wow. First off, the Pharisees, well, the whole Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, members of the Sanhedrin are standing there. Right? Picture them right here behind me. I've been talking to them, and then I turn and address the crowd about them. I mean, you see how indicting this is. I said, hey, these guys sit in Moses' seat, so you have to obey them, but don't you dare do what they do. I mean, it's insulting in the biggest way. Why would you have to obey them, though, if you can't do what they do, if what they do is bad? I, oh. But is all authority God-ordained? So how do you determine what authorities you have to obey and what authorities you don't? All real authority does come from God. Okay? But there's such a thing as misplaced authority. There's such a thing. I'll give you a great example. Pilate, Jesus said he didn't have any authority except what the Father had given him. Jesus answered his questions. He addressed him. They conversed. Who's the only guy that Jesus stood silent in front of? Would not answer a single question. Herod. Why? Because Herod held the position that belonged to Jesus. That, that was not ordained of God. You can have in a position of authority be wicked, but the position still be God-ordained. King of the Jews is not one that was God-ordained that Herod could be in. You know, had it been some secular ruler, maybe, but not king of the Jews. So where was the Pharisees' position of authority derived from? We know that it was authority that came from God or Jesus would not have said to obey it. Not saying that they used it godly, but where did it come from? Where in the law? You remember Moses had a little conversation with Jethro? His father-in-law, some people call him Raul, which may have been a title. Turn with me to Exodus 18. We'll read that real quick just as a refresher and then we'll move on. Y'all thought Jethro was a guy on a TV show with Ellie May, huh? Jethro? Uh, yeah, 18, starting in... Um, 20. No, 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. 
And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. And he goes on to talk about Moses' load. What was the qualifications? They needed to be capable men who feared God, who were trustworthy, who hated dishonest gain. The reason Jesus says these men sit in Moses' seat is because Moses received a commandment to choose representatives from among the people to help him as judges over the people. At different times, there were different numbers. But basically, in Jesus' day, there were about 70, uh, or some say 72. It's one of those translation issues, one from each tribe. And these were a representative government of Israel. Well, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the people that made up the Sanhedrin, made up the Congress of Israel. Whether or not they were acting with the religious authority of God, speaking for God was beside the point. They had civil authority as judges in Israel. The same way a police officer may be bad, but he still has authority as a police officer. Or a judge may be morally corrupt, but he's still a judge. His sentences count. So you have to obey them, but you don't do everything they do. Somebody asked me once, well, then do you obey the authority of the Pope? No, not unless you are a member of the Vatican or an employee of the Vatican. Uh, But he has no authority in my life. He's not a governmental official in the United States. He's not a leader of a church that I'm a part of, and I frankly don't see his authority as having derived from God. So there's no, there's no reason for me to obey the Pope. If I were submitted as a bishop in his church, yeah, I'd have to, except for where he contradicted with God, which I would think would be more often than not. So, uh, yeah, my Catholic friends would just love to get this CD, wouldn't they? Um, So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The thing that holds back the Christian witness from going forth is the belief that people do not practice what they preach. You've heard it your whole life. Hypocrisy is something that truthfully exist in everybody to some degree, you know, that you do not carry out the good that you want to do. Paul talked about that struggle in Romans 7. But when it becomes a norm in your life and a standard of practice rather than something that you are struggling against, you transition from somebody who happens to have some hypocrisy in their life to a hypocrite. And these people are hypocrites. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make wide their phylacteries. They make their (laughs) phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have all men call them rabbi. In John 5, let's turn to John 5 real quick. This is just on this topic of everything they do, they do for men to see. 
Listen how Jesus addresses these people, keeping in, in mind that they're sitting in authority that was granted by Moses as directed by God. John 5:41. I do not accept praise for men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You ever wondered why Jesus said their accuser was Moses? Because they were sitting in the positions of authority that Moses had given. And yet they did not act like Moses. They didn't act. They were not trustworthy. They didn't hate dishonest gain. They were not fearers of God. They were not capable men. All of those things that God instructed through Jethro, Moses, to choose men. They didn't do that. Instead, their motivations were achieving praise from other people. They loved the way they were greeted. With that in mind, go back to Matthew 23 and we'll get to the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight. In Matthew 23, picking up back in verse 5 and we'll read on down. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. I got a chance to study a little bit today. And basically there are three root words here that he's going to address. Three that were common in his day. Rabbi is probably... The one that we're most familiar with. Sometimes you hear Rabboni. It was translated. You hear other ways that it was translated. Matt, you've got the Jewish New Testament. What's yours say there? Does it say Rabbi? Okay. There was Rabban, Rabbi, and Rab. All those are like, um, I don't know what the right word for that is. Those are beginnings of words that always have the same meaning. Prefix, that's what I was trying to get at. Those are prefixes that you add an ending to and it changes the meaning somewhat. But get this. Starting with, uh, with Rab means great. Rabbi, greater. Rabban, greatest. They had begun to rate themselves as teachers as great, greater, and greatest. And each level, their infallibility increased. Boy, don't you see that spirit? It's still at work in the Latin church today, isn't it? Well, get this. He said that they loved to have people call him rabbi. Because although it literally just was supposed to indicate that you were a teacher, by Jesus' day it had begun to indicate more than you were a teacher. You were somebody great. Kind of like Pastor Stevens. That could just mean servant, which is what it was intended to be. But in a lot of churches, it means the guy who parks up front. It means the guy who wears the shiny suit. It means the guy who makes more money than everybody else in the church. The one who stands on the tallest stage. You know, follow me? It became a term of elevation rather than 
a term of endearment. But you are not to be called. Who's he speaking to here? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the crowd. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Doesn't matter what your title is, everybody is a brother. Watch this. This is good. This is freeing. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The idea was that the Pharisees were using these titles to exert their authority. They used them as a means to exalt themselves, whereas in Christianity, our goal is to serve the very least. Now, think about what the first problem I had with this is they called Jesus rabbi and he accepted it. They call uh, children address their parents as father in the Bible. Indeed, one of the commandments is honor your father and mother. So certainly the word father can't be bad, can it? And then... The last one, teacher. Barnabas was a teacher, you know. I mean, there are people called teacher in the Bible. One of the members of the fivefold uh, ministry, one of the offices, is teacher. So is Jesus saying, don't call somebody father? Because that's what he said. Is he saying, don't call somebody teacher? Because that's what he said. And I scratched my head. I told Matt today, I was talking to my phone, I said, this, this causes me some problems, you know. Uh, so what is the answer? Well, if you put it in its context, the Pharisees loved the praise they were receiving from people. They were hypocrites in the highest degree. They didn't care about the people. They cared about praise that they would receive from each other. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, don't be like this. Basically, he's saying, don't desire to have people call you rabbi. Don't desire to have people call you master, father, or teacher. Instead, you need to serve the least, and that's how you become great. And I thought about that. I said, well, we kind of know that. So what's revolutionary? Why is this causing me a problem? I thought about it. Paul says he's somebody's spiritual father, right? Did you all remember that? It's 1 Corinthians 4. Four. Yeah, well, he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says... Hey, you may have had, uh, well, look, turn there. It's, uh, I think it's Corinthians 4. He, he does mention Timothy as his son in the same, and that helps understand the passage, actually. Um, for my writing, okay, for right here. Um, verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, 4.14, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Say, I have been in a situation before, and I'm sure you guys have, where somebody wants to exert authority in your life because they are your father, right? The spirit in which Paul is saying this is he's appealing to somebody that he loves like a father would a child. Here's the difference. 
He's saying, he calls them his dearly beloved children when he opens the, the, the message. Not his blood-obligated children. He calls Timothy his son, even though Timothy's not his son. The idea is to indicate how much he loves Timothy. So that they'll receive him as they did the natural son. He calls himself a father to them, hoping to express his love for them so that he doesn't have to be harsh in his use of godly authority as an apostle. What Jesus was teaching against when he was talking to the Pharisees were these titles that lifted you up to exert authority in people's life. You're not allowed to say, hey, I am the... You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? He said, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He shamed Nicodemus because the idea was, we are teachers, you are the stupid students. That was the idea that Phariseeism uh, produced. It was condescending. It was, I'm the teacher, you know nothing. My word is beyond reproach. Think of John 9, the blind man. Remember? They said, what do you say about Jesus? And he tells them. And they get so mad, they say, how dare you lecture us? We have Moses as our teacher. You were steeped in sin from birth. That kind of attitude. Above, beyond correction, beyond reproach, you simply submit to me like any kid would a father. Jesus is teaching against that. He's telling his followers, it cannot be that way. You are never to exert that kind of authority over people where they treat you as a master and you are the servant. Or they, or you are the kid and they are the daddy. It's not that way in the kingdom. Think about this. What is the highest calling that we think of from Ephesians 4? God appointed first of all apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then pastors, then evangelists. How do you become the greatest? Serve the least. So the guy that has the most authority from God, how does he get it? Serving the least. Not exerting the most authority. Not being above correction or beyond reproach. That's wrong. This is a revelation to me. It's wrong. It's wrong to try to exert that. That that is that same pharisaical spirit that we see in the Latin church so prevalent. Where they say, we're the church, we're beyond reproach. How dare you? Well, it creeps into charismatic Christianity by saying, I'm your spiritual father or I'm the apostle in this work. Here's the only way apostles exerted that kind of authority. When they went, they labored in an area to begin a church, and then they saw outside corrupting influences trying to distort the gospel foundation. You don't ever see it directing the affairs of people's lives. Even when Paul writes later uh, regarding the slave, uh, what is one of the T's? Uh, Titus. Is it Titus? No, it's Philemon, I'm sorry. Even when God, or when Paul is writing about Philemon, and he's writing to his owner, this is somebody that was quote-unquote submitted to Paul. Okay? They loved Paul, they received his apostleship, all those things. Paul said he had a right to demand something of Philemon, but he wouldn't. He just asked. You could take that and say, well, Paul's he had a right to demand of this guy because he was his spiritual child, or he was somebody submitted to Paul's apostleship. Number one, Paul didn't do it. Number two, the only reason that Paul had a right to demand anything had nothing to do with who Paul was, but because it was right in the Lord. 
See, it's not because he was Paul that he could have demanded it. It's because it's what God would have wanted that he could demand it. See, I should show you honor if you're a teacher to me. I should show you honor if you've been like a father to me. But here's the balancing factor. You're also my brother. We are all equals in this race. Nobody's lifted above anybody else. And if you are a teacher, you're a teacher only by the anointing of God. So when you're speaking under the anointing, you're a teacher to me. The rest of the time, we're brothers because the Bible says, I need that no man teach me. The Christ will teach, the anointing, the anointed one will teach me all things. The Holy Spirit will remind me of the words of Jesus. So why is it that I need a teacher? Because God will raise up men that will teach you. Not so that they become a demagogue in your life, directing God's will to you. In fact, God can set that guy down and pick up somebody else. You don't need that any man teach you. God will raise up whatever he needs. See, the Pharisees wanted to use their titles to lift themselves up. Do you remember uh, James and John? They came to Jesus with the mom. Say, hey, you know, I want you to do something for my boys. Want one on the right, one on the left. He said, man, you can't get what you're after. We're not like the Gentiles who lord our authority over each other. This is a revelation to me. You know, if I had known some of the... Perhaps it helped me submit during times. You know, which maybe was proper during the time. Y'all, I received my orders from Jesus. You do too. My goal in your life is to help you manage your calling. Jesus even is considered a brother to us. He's just the eldest brother. Really, the direction comes from the Father and flows through Jesus because He's been appointed Lord over us. Co-heirs with Him. How can I be a co-heir of Jesus and the whipping boy of some other church? Can't. Cannot. It was never designed. That's denominationalism. That's, that's something that is a sinful work of man. And I, I really, I feel freed as I studied this, found this out. The Pharisees wanted it, here's the magic words, as a means of control. Jesus does not want you controlled by any man. Because if you're controlled by the man, even if he's godly, you can't be controlled by God. You are a slave to the one that you present yourself as a slave to obey. Does not Romans say that? Sure it does. Sure it does. So what we tend to do is say, oh, well, I'm serving Jesus as I serve him. Well, that's okay. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But you always, the litmus test needs to be, if Jesus spoke something differently to me than that person received, where would my allegiance lie? And if the answer is, Jesus would never do that, you're wrong right now. You've lifted that person to a Pope-like status in your life, and it's wrong. You cannot do it. It's wrong. God did not intend that anybody be a pope to you. You don't see it anywhere in the New Testament. Peter, probably the most preeminent leader in the early first 50 years of the century, stands up and he says what he thinks at the church council in Jerusalem. James stands up and says, okay, I heard that. Now it's my decision that we, you know why? It was James's church. He was the pastor there. You know, contrary to what our Catholic brothers believe about Peter being the first pope, that's a great example of James exerting authority in his church that Peter didn't have. Peter's words were advice to his face. And everybody goes, well, you're not Paul. Well, okay, you're, you're not Peter. 
Okay? It makes no difference whether we're talking about janitors in the church or apostles in the church. Here's another one. If you have ever had any concern about what happens if this ministry gets into weirdness, who on earth is responsible for it? Let me clear it up right now. Jesus is. Jesus is responsible for it. And he could use Mandy. He could use Gabriel. He could use Natalie. He could use Jennifer. He could use Cassidy to correct me. And if I'm not correctable by the least, then pride has crept in my heart and I'm in sin. I need to be correctable. No matter what. The way I protect myself from being lifted up, if we ever grow, and I know we will, when we grow, the way I protect myself is by being accountable to the smallest sheep in the church. When we begin to get the idea, they know nothing, we know everything, or how dare they? I've served the Lord 20 years. How dare they? That's a Pharisee. Now, I'll be honest, I've been guilty of that. I've served God with many godly brothers that were guilty of it and that are guilty of it today. I don't say this to indict them. I'm telling us so we don't, we get it right. I've had people that were pupils of mine, a few weeks old in the Lord, look at me and say, well, and rebuke me, right? Well, we know we have to take it godly, you know, humbly. Oh, thank you, brother. Inwardly, I thought, you jackass, you know nothing. You know nothing and you're correcting me. That is, that is what the Pharisees did. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans. I know this could be taken harshly about people that come to mind. I don't want it to be. What, I, what I'm fixing to teach in Romans, I wouldn't know if I wasn't taught somewhere. I'm very, very thankful for my heritage. But look, just because you graduate from a school and you're an alumni there does not mean your whole life is spent serving that school. You have a greater call to the profession that you went to be trained for. Well, I was called by Jesus. I was saved and it was not the work of any man. None. There have been people and one more than any other along the way that have helped to shape my calling. I will not yield it to anyone to control. It's been referred to in the past jokingly. Well, Eric Stevens is mine. No, I, I belong to no one. And if I ever say that about y'all, even in joking, I need to be corrected. It's wrong. Matthew Pirro is called by God. Could anybody ever doubt that? No, of course not. But that calling does not belong to life-changing. I'm going to ordain him. This church is going to ordain me. We've been ordained before, but we're going to be ordained in Texas by this work. That ordination does not belong to me. I'm simply recognizing that my master has set him apart for that. You guys are recognizing that upon me. It doesn't belong to me. I don't use it to control him. If one day we are financially dependent upon this church, we're really not. We're dependent upon Jesus, but this church will never control us. I will never use money as a means to control that family. I'm going to set it up in the beginning so that it's not even possible. Okay, I mean, I'm just telling you that that kind of stuff that happens in the kingdom is wrong. It's wrong. It's the work of men. And what happens is as people get older, they start worrying about protecting retirements. They start worrying about things that men worry about. That's why your productive years in the kingdom, although we may be stupid, we may be full of vinegar and whatever else in our 20s and 30s. It's why they're productive years in the kingdom. You have no such concerns. You just want to conquer for Jesus. 
Well, there's a lot to be said for that. I hope I'm that way when I'm 80. Because what, well, the bottom line uh, about all of that is our only authority, only positions that we have come in Christ. And I don't have any authority in your life that Jesus didn't give me. And what did we study two weeks ago? I have authority to build you up and not tear you down. I can never use my godly position, my anointed position, because I love Mandy and I want her here to keep her from marrying and going to work somewhere else. Because I would like Mandy here. I can't keep Mandy from going to Africa if that's what she's called to do because she has an obligation to a higher authority. And it's sin for me to do anything like that. My goal is not to control Mandy's life. There are times I've been too controlling. I mean, I have to have to learn all of that. I'm working on it. My goal is to help steer her and direct her in her calling. See, we are managers as pastors. We are not dictators. And if the, the problem is the sheep often want a dictator. They don't want to make decisions. Help me, Lord. What do I do here? What do I do here? When, you should be taking it to Jesus instead of the pastor. The pastor should help you throw out ideas that are obviously not God but not be directing you. Charismatic Christianity is horrible about this because we all claim to hear from God as if it's infallible. Well, I can tell you I've lived long enough to not know a single person, not one, who's not Mr. Prophecy. Now, I'm telling you, born nobody in my life, not one, there's nobody that I know that has not Mr. Prophecy, me included. Well, keep that in mind. You know? Now, you still can't treat it with contempt. I'm a teacher of the Word. I'm a pastor also. And whatever other calling hopefully will be self-evident in time. That's not for me to lord that over you. In fact, I'm only that to you if you recognize it. And if you don't, it doesn't do me any good to try to force it. All it does is create friction. On this subject, though, of uh, the attitude of the Pharisees, listen to how Paul addresses a church in Rome. By the way, he'd never been here. Okay? He'd never even met these people. And listen to how harsh he is to them. And it's because that Pharisee spirit creeped in to this Roman church. We call them Judaizers once Christianity's come. And I said Roman church. I don't mean the Catholic church. I mean the church in Rome in Jesus' day. Not Jesus' day, but Paul's day. And uh, this is Romans 2, start in 17. Now you, if you call yourselves a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Isn't that the same spirit that Jesus addressed those Pharisees about? He said, you see yourselves as a teacher for the blind. You see yourselves as a rabbi, somebody great. You want to be looked at like a father and them as stupid children, unable to dress themselves. And yet, your actions show that you make sons twice the hell, twice the sons of hell that you are. 
Yo, that spirit of wanting to elevate ourselves, we cannot do it. I was in a church in Lafayette, and the people were so sweet. And one rode a bicycle 20-something miles to hear me preach. And I was worried that I had gone over on my time, because I tend to do that. I preached like an hour and a half. The service went on another three hours, you know. They went till midnight easy, easy in the middle of the week without... We must have had like ten closing prayers. It was unbelievable. But they had these purple thrones, man. You know? And that spirit was in the church. Because they were an impoverished church, they wanted something to look up to. So they let their pastors be lifted up above everybody else. So that they sat on... And I didn't want to sit up there. And it caused a problem. Eventually, I had to go sit up there. I didn't think this all the way through. Because they didn't understand that a pastor wouldn't. And they they took it like disrespect. I figured as a chance to be able to teach them, I would submit to it. But inside it felt wrong. And it is wrong. It is wrong to have a big I, little you complex about Christianity. You know why Paul had so much authority in these people's lives? He risked his life daily for them. He gave His last dime for them. He suffered beatings that they might get the word. Well, if I did that for you, don't you think if I asked you for something, you'd be more likely to do it? But if our relationship was one of teacher and student, and over time, less is being learned and taught, and our lives begin to go separate ways, it's not Amway. It's not who you come in under, you stay under. That's not the way it works. If it were... Everybody that I was ever associated with would be submitted to GMSA or submitted to Bethany. And they're not, and they shouldn't be. Jesus, actually what he does, when you look at people's lives like Joseph, like Daniel, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, all of these men of God, he teaches people to submit to him by way of his spirit. And initially that is demonstrated through church leadership and authority. But if you are not willing to go against the grain of your peers, you will never make it in the kingdom of God. Because every man of God reaches a place where everybody in his life says he shouldn't or he can't, and God says he will and he must. Paul got there. Peter got there. You remember Peter? He had the vision about the sheep being let down. All of his brothers jumped on his case. You went into the home of a Gentile. What if he had thought, man, I need to submit to James's authority. He's the pastor in the church. You know? Or, or the other apostles. Or whatever it may have been. You know, it cannot be that way. There has got to be a coming of age in every Christian's life. Now, Where that is different is as long as we're within this church. As long as you're within a church. Don't think you can go submit to somebody's leadership, then hear from God and dictate that they do everything different in the church. It doesn't work that way. Their authority in the church is well-founded. It's their church. It's the church that God used them to establish. But when we're talking about outside of those walls, it's something totally different. And even within this church, although God's used me to establish it, if I'm not correctable, if I'm not open to other influence... I have to be careful that I don't get crossways with the master who told me to found the church because ultimately, ultimately it belongs to him. You know, talk about church with square wheels. If you're uncorrectable, you got square wheels. Doesn't matter how anointed you seem to be or how deep your knowledge is. You can't have square wheels. So Romans 2 
teaches of that attitude. The underlying thing, though, here with the Pharisees and with this in Romans 2 uh, is these people were hypocrites. They wanted to be seen this way, but they didn't live that way. Do you want to have a lot of authority in my life? Serve me. You'll have it. Serve me. Love me like Jesus would, and I'll do anything for you. But to try to exert authority in my life when you haven't served me, haven't shown me that kind of love, of course I don't recognize it. You wouldn't either. Does that make sense? If if I never say a kind word to you, and I never do anything uh, godly in your life, of course you're not going to recognize a lot of authority here. Now, I'm not comparing that to anybody. Everybody I know has done godly things in my life. It's been sweet. I don't care if Russ Gotro was declared to be the archbishop over the United States, though. He's not going to have very much authority in my life. That's not because I'm bitter. That's just I have got my directives from God. I, I don't need him to give me directives. Now, I've, I've chased a rabbit a little bit, but I hope you all know where I'm coming from. And this was a revelation to me. Um, Let's go back to Matthew 23. I'm not teaching that you should have disrespect for authorities or people that have worked in your life. The Bible says if somebody's work is preaching and teaching, they're worth, worthy of double honor. And you know that. You don't, the reason that Paul appeals to them as a father, it's because, man, don't show disrespect for, for him. He's been like a daddy loving you. But that's totally different than saying, you're my son, you must, because you're in my household. That's a totally different relationship. That's trying to usurp an authority that only God has. And that's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 23. Listen to how Jesus says it and then we'll move on. But you are not to be called rabbi. Why? For you have only one master. The only person that is a master to you is the Father. And you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father. For you have one Father and He's in heaven. There's only one guy that originated your spirit. There's only one guy that is responsible for you coming into being. And that's Jesus. It does not matter who labored to see you come to Jesus, who helped deliver you. He is the Father of your spirit. And the Bible says so. It's also the Father of lights. He's the Father of a lot of things. But He's the Father of your spirit. So nobody else can hold that role. Nobody else can act like they are responsible for your birth in Christ. At best, they just help deliver you. He's the Father. No one else is. No one else can take that role. Mandy's come to know most of what she knows about Jesus through me. But it was God's work. I was just a servant that He used. And as much as I hold a role in her life of teacher and she shows me honor for that, ultimately I'm just a brother. I have every right to teach her what God is showing me I should teach her. I have every right to use all the authority that God has given me as He shows me to direct it to her. But the moment that He has spoken something to her that is different than what He's spoken to me, she needs to weigh that. She needs to make sure that it's right. But that our relationship begins to change then. She's getting directions directly from the king. I'm simply a brother trying to help her on her way. She's not my child that I say, no, you can't. It doesn't work that way. No, 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 we don't have that kind of authority. We have authority for building up, not tearing down. Anyone call you father? Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. You guys can call me a teacher if you want, but only if you understand. It's not really my teaching. See, get that. It is not my teaching. Say, but so-and-so taught you all that about Jesus. It wasn't their teaching. 
And it was not them who was teaching. If it was, it was the work of a man. It was the anointing in them that they received from God teaching you. And if he didn't use them, he'd have used somebody else. They were a willing vessel. See, I am teaching you everything that God is showing me to teach. Everything that I know. But it's not my teaching. Get this. Jesus did not come and speak Jesus' own words. He came and only spoke the words that the Father gave him. And only did what he saw the Father do. So Jesus didn't even take credit for it. He didn't seek glory for himself. He didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped at. But he was the Word. So all the work that I do in your life, you know where I get credit for that? From Jesus himself. I don't have the right to demand it of you. I hope that you would see it and want to reciprocate it. Because my work's worthy of double honor. But I do not have the right to demand it. I didn't give you anything except what I was given. See, it wasn't mine. I don't have a copyright on it. And I said, but, but you learned everything that you learned. I learned it from Jesus. Didn't matter whether it was an open vision or a tape, a John Hagee book, or a sermon from a pastor that I love. It was Jesus. It belonged to him. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Listen to that. I want you to hear that. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That does not just mean somebody who is striving to be number one will be humbled. It doesn't mean somebody who exalts themselves without merit, like they didn't do anything to deserve it, will be humbled. It simply means what it says. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. See, you have authority in people's lives as God shows them that authority. But when you begin to exalt yourself in their lives, you begin to try to show authority, you're going to get humbled. And it hurts. And you usually blame people and you get bitter over it. That's how that happens. Yeah? I'm telling you, he will. And you know what? I'm, I'm aware that it's kind of like when you stand up and you teach, you are not under a law to tithe. There is no curse that will come upon you if you don't tithe. You're aware that when you teach that, although it's God's word, it's kind of damaging. You know, you'd rather have people kind of assume that, you know, there is a, a stick out there that's going to beat them over the head if they don't tithe. These things that I'm teaching, I realize people could take the wrong way. What what uh, Peter say about Paul's writing? Ignorant men twist it, twist it. I realize there are people out there that will find fault in everything that I'm saying. Some because they want to show disrespect for authority, and others because they think I'm showing disrespect for authority. I don't really care. My conscience is clear. But the thing is, what I'm teaching doesn't lift me up in your eyes. It pulls me down. But to the person who really has eyes to see. I don't need to be lifted up. Matt doesn't need to be lifted up in anybody's eyes. As we do the work God called us to do, then God will do what he does with us. You know, I didn't ever have to tell Mandy I was her pastor. She came and told me I was her pastor. You know, that's how that works. Incidentally, this idea of wearing name tags for proper respect, this teaching shines kind of a light on that, doesn't it? People won't have a problem determining who the pastors in a church are. You don't have to put it on a sign. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do so. They won't have a problem finding out. 
they'll see who acts like a pastor. You know what? And if somebody's been in the church for a couple weeks and they can't tell who the pastor is, the pastor's probably not acting right. You know? You don't, you don't, and, and here's, here's the favorite. Let's have a senior, let's have a, a senior associate, and then a, a junior associate, and yeah, that's, that's really what we need. Let's have a hierarchy of pastors. That, that's, Jesus would love that, wouldn't he? That's absurd, isn't it? It is. It's absurd. I've participated in it, and I was wrong. You know what? There's nothing wrong with saying, I was wrong. It's okay. Do y'all lose respect for me if I tell you I was wrong sometimes? You ought to gain. It ought to gain respect. There are times that I've taught something dogmatically that I was wrong about. Didn't mean to. But the good news is, as I find out, I'll correct it, you know. That should happen. I don't have to be right about everything. I can get it wrong sometimes. Doesn't mean that I don't hear from God. You know, not every prophecy has to come true. We don't have to try to work it out to make it to where it's impossible for me to miss. You know, we can just accept it and say, maybe I was wrong. I prophesied to Matthew one time he was going to marry a brunette with brown eyes. I was wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. I love Cassidy. You know? We've tried to work that thing out. I'm talking about me and my mom. Tried to work that thing out to be, yeah, including her in my sin. Oh, well, maybe it was his daughter because she seems to have brown eyes or brown hair. Then I realized she had green eyes. Uh, you know, put the X on that too. Can't we just... <laughs> Second wife. You know, I mean, but, but the thing is, is why is it so hard just to say, I miss God? And you know what people do? They say, oh, I don't think I miss God. Uh, somebody else zig when they say, no, come on, man. People miss it sometimes. When's the last time you heard a pastor stand up and say that? I'm sorry. I missed it. You know, I was wrong. I prophesied that and it was wrong. I taught that and it was not correct. I've only heard that once that I can think of. And it was over something insignificant. Whether or not the Wadi River was actually the... uh, It was, yeah, the Wadi or Sea of Reeds. Yeah, and so what? I mean, I understand wanting to get it right. It's not of substance. You need to hear every once in a while, I blow it just like you do. You know? That's easy to do in a group this small. Let there be 5,000 and you know 1,000 will walk out if you say it. And it gets much harder. But we have to hold ourselves to the same standard. Let there be 5,000, you know 1,000 will walk out and it means you can't pay a light bill. It means that you uh, may end up penniless, destitute, and not have a retirement. Let there be 100 and 20 walk out. And they might be the 20 biggest tithers. See, there are pressures on pastors. There are reasons these things happen. It's always easy like this. People, you ever heard people say, the church started right and somehow or another they all get off? Well, pressures increase. The calling increases. The way gets narrower and narrower. After a while, when people kick you around and kick you around and kick you around, you begin to think that people owe you something. You know? When you begin to talk about the things you've done for God as if God owes you something. I gave away a car. I did this. I did that. You know, now I don't have to show that kind of faith. I deserve some contentment. I don't see that in the Word. And I I can't tolerate it in me. I need to challenge myself to show more faith tomorrow than I have today. Um, Woe to you teachers of the law 
and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. Now, see, they thought they were a guide for the blind. That's a saying that they had. They called Gentiles dogs. They called other Gentiles fools. This is where Jesus said, if you said your brother fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Because it meant you're so stupid, you can't find God. Okay, that was their attitude. They saw themselves as guides for the blind, and Jesus calls them blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You fools! (laughs) Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. It's interesting how they had all their divisions of of the rules, huh? They don't make much sense. Churches do that. You know, they start making rules about... Well, we license you, we ordain you, we do this, but it's only for this, this, and that. Either you approve of me and you recognize the call of God on my life or you don't. Why put stipulations on things? Why? You know, and it's a means of control. They allowed swearing by some things and not by other things because they wanted to be able to get out of certain oaths. (laughs) You know, I mean... And Jesus points it out. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matter of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's, what is that, Micah 5.8, 6.8? Somewhere 5.8 or 6.8. It says, and you, O man, what does God require? That you act justly, you walk humbly, and you love mercy. You know, that's, that's what the law was supposed to teach. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Paul knew those words. You know how I know he knew those words? Because when he was pressed, I don't know, what's that, like Acts 20? He's pressed and the high priest orders him to be struck on the cheek and it came right out of his mouth. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. What was he saying? When he said whitewashed wall, what was he saying? It's an illusion 
to what Jesus said. It's a reference. He's saying, you appear to people as righteous, but you're a hypocrite. And he followed it up. Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You judge me according to the law of Moses, and you violate that very law by commanding that I be struck. They said, how dare you? You're talking to the high priest. Mm, Sorry, I didn't realize he was the high priest. Why didn't he realize he was the high priest? He didn't act like it. You got it. Didn't recognize the authority because the guy wasn't using it right. When he was informed of it, so he's in Moses' seat. Okay. Now, I, I personally think Paul was jesting with them a little bit. Uh, I guess we ought to finish this. The idea being, you want to have a position of authority among people? Act like Jesus. You'll have all of his authority. But to the extent that you try to carry it in your own strength and do all of those things, you'll find yourself kicking against God and you'll prove yourself to be a hypocrite. I found that people, and I'm one of them, okay, people that try to exert the most authority have the hardest time submitting to authority. It's why they want to exert so much. I'm that way. I have a hard time submitting to authority. I don't like it. You know, I am a bit of a rebel. So it makes me, that, that deficiency makes me somewhat controlling if I'm not careful. Because since there's not a proper submission on my end, the authority doesn't always flow through me like it should so I don't see submission on the other end and I try to make up for it in my own strength now I'm getting much better people that have known me a long time can attest to that the way that I speak to my wife that I speak to my kids that I deal with the church of God is totally different today than it was 10 years ago I'm growing a pastor should grow (sighs) I hope that's not scary a pastor should be growing I will get better at this and if I'm blowing something right now in your lives it's okay I'll get better And you'll forgive me. You have to. That's right. (laughs) There was a time I had to learn to... Matt Matt does know, but... uh, You know, we were doing ceiling work and stuff at his house. There's reasons I know how to fix sheetrock. You know? (laughs) Um, The sheetrock work at his house was, was recently. No, no. I just... No, I got a 10-year experience. Uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of sin of your forefathers. I didn't understand that for a long time. In they were descendants. So in what way were they sinning? Because they didn't have any problem calling the people that killed them their forefathers. If it were us, we'd make a great, de- like slavery. I can say my forefathers may have enslaved people, but I'll preface it with, you know, <laughs> they're nothing like me. I don't want to be a part of that family line. I didn't have anything to do with it. These guys, they were proud of the whole heritage, you know, because their forefathers that killed the prophets were positions of leadership and their authority derived from it. (laughs) Jesus 
He's putting it on them. If you ever thought to be a Christian, you, you never raised your voice. You never. Paul called people dogs, mutilators of the flesh. Jesus called them brood of vipers, snakes. You know, Paul one time, and I, I honestly, I still don't quite have a great understanding of this, <laughs> says about Cretans that they're all lazy slugs. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it, but I mean, that's that's pretty much a racial slur. Uh, but what I'm getting at is they, they use strong, strong words about people. Don't anybody fall away over the Cretan thing. I mean, I'm sure Jesus will show us what Paul was talking about. Uh, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. My goodness. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zerachiah, son of Berechiah. I'm sorry, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. All that blood did come upon them. You remember they cried out, let his blood be upon us and our children's children. Uh, Deuteronomy 32:43 says, and I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago. When blood's been shed on land, it can only be atoned for by the one who shed it. That's why Jesus can atone for the land as well. Because he was a Jew, he was the king, and the Jews were the ones that were shedding the blood on the land. So his blood atoned for it. It's beautiful how God worked all that out. Numbers 35 has something to say about that too. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look at your house. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. They sang that every year. Um... I said a lot of hard things tonight, and I know that. And it's not so much that they're hard for you. It's that they can be applied harshly about people that we know and we've been associated with and all those things. Let me balance that with, I'm very, very grateful for everybody that's played a role in in my life. Just like you are about the people that have played a role in your life. Where I become agitated and I feel a godly rousing in me, is when other people want to exert control over me in a way that I think is displeasing to Jesus. And I can tell you now, I don't care what I'm accused of, I will never submit to that. Never. Not for any reason. I am staking my entire life upon the fact that every man can hear from God and that Jesus can direct the affairs of every man's life. And that we need direction from elders. We need counsel of peers. We need all of those things. But ultimately, it's every man's decision to make that he heard from God and he did what God told him to do. See, because to enter the kingdom, you have to do the will of the Father, not the will somebody told you, not what you thought was good. You have to do the will of God for your life. Sunday, I'm going to preach on being God's chosen instrument. God chose Paul as an instrument for a specific purpose. He spoke about David another time. He said, when David, this is also an Acts, when David had fulfilled his purpose in his generation. See, I don't, I have an idea. 
I have a real good idea what Matt and Cassidy's purpose is. I have an idea what Mandy's is. I have an idea what yours is. But ultimately, it's your job to find that and fulfill it. See, I see it just in part. And for me to try to dictate it to you might mean that you submit to something that was never quite God's will for you. Have you never had friends that love you, that hear from God, encourage you to do something that wasn't God, or discourage you from doing something that was God? The people who taught me told me that would be the case. They told me that would be the case. That when God speaks, he gives you the faith for it, but doesn't always give the people around you faith for it. And they're often the ones who try to rain on your parade. I don't know why it was so ironic when that's exactly what happened. You know, I hope it's not the case when it comes time to send you guys out. And yet I know it probably will be. All I can do is prepare in advance and try not to do that because I'm learning like we're all learning but what it amounts to is the authority that apostles prophets teachers pastors and evangelists have flows through Jesus to you it does not take the place of Jesus authority in your life he doesn't need any stepping stones in between there you need that no man teach you and yet he's appointed men to teach you but you're not dependent upon them your calling in your life does not rest upon any man if I fall in sin tomorrow, your salvation's not canceled. My Amway downline doesn't go away. You know? I mean, isn't that crazy? It's what it sounds like. It's just good ideas that are not God. So, the Word should be a mirror tonight. When I applied a lot of these things, it's easy to apply them everywhere else. Let's just apply them in our lives so that we don't become unhealthy, unbalanced, or think bad thoughts about anyone. You know, this should be freeing in that our goal is to make this church what God wants it to be, to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our life, but ultimately to submit to God. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray.